You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, Paul here, and just a quick message from me to let you know that if you are looking to improve the performance of your team, no matter whether it is a work, sporting, or community one, then we've developed some tools to help. On the website, you will find our Thriving Teams Diagnostic, which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everyone. Paul here. We are taking a short break over the holiday season, and so we're using the opportunity to revisit some of our favorite interviews. This week's is from Carrie Graff. Carrie's views on female empowerment and leadership generated the most in-depth and enjoyable discussion with my family around our dinner table, and I hope it helps generate the same level of discussion for you too. Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance of lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are all on the same team. Now you roll and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt tonight. Great moments are born from great opportunity. My name is Paul Barnett, and you are listening to The Great Coaches Podcast where we interview great sporting coaches to try and find ideas to help all of us lead our teams better. Our great coach on this episode is Carrie Graff. Carrie is a former professional basketball player and coach. She started her professional playing career as a 16-year-old in the Australian National League, playing for the Ngunnawading Spectres in multiple championships. She transitioned to professional coaching in 1993, winning the national championship in her first year. Seven further championships followed in the years leading to 2010. In 2004, she became the first female Australian coach in the WNBA in America, leading the Phoenix Mercury. She also coached the Australian national team to a bronze medal at the 2012 Olympics. Carrie is a coach with a purpose. She believes that girls are capable of anything, and through her coaching, she empowers them to, in her words, be the Prime Minister, the President, a brain surgeon, a nuclear physicist, an Olympic athlete, an Olympic coach, or a football champion. 
This is a wide-ranging interview and the highlights for me were how she addressed her team's self-doubt by asking them to go back to childhood and list out all the championships they had collectively won as individuals. How team values must be referenced in every training session and during the game if you want them to become part of how you function as a team. And she shares a good story of how they score themselves on these values during timeouts in a game. The importance of using your voice assertively so that you can help your teammates see what the next possible decision could be. And she gives great examples of why this is important for female athletes to develop. And towards the end, she gives great examples of how female and male sports are equal and how you can affirm this with young girls while watching sport with them. This was a wonderful conversation, one of my favourites so far, and I hope you enjoy it as much as Jim and I did. The Great Coaches Podcast. Carrie Graff, good afternoon and welcome to The Great Coaches Podcast. Good afternoon. Carrie, just a little really simple question to kick us off. Where are you in the world today and what have you been up to? I'm in, uh, I'm in our nation's capital here in Australia, in Canberra, um, and we're on the verge of... Uh, the verge of a WNBL upcoming WNBL season um, that may well be in a hub due to COVID. So we're um, we're madly scrambling as we find out the details of that. But my role is as director of sport at the University of Canberra. So it's not in a coaching role at the moment. I oversee um, various sporting things here at the university. We've got high performance teams. So we own and operate the Canberra Capitals, a team I coached for a long time. Um, we have a, a strong relationship with, with Brumby Super Rugby, who are about to tip off in the Australian Grand Final tomorrow. Uh, we have a women's rugby sevens team. We were a sponsor for Canberra United, the women's football team. We've got 130 lead athletes here at the uni. We do social sport, resi sport, intervarsity sport. We operate a gym. So, yeah, that, that's keeping me busy and entertained post-coaching. Well, Carrie, we're grateful to have just a little bit of your time today, given how busy you are, to talk about your coaching career. And I'd actually like to start, um, with some of the great coaches you've had experience or exposure to. So I was looking in researching for today, I can see names like Tom Marr, Cheryl Miller, Barry Barnes, and this is just, this is just a few. You've also coached at multiple Olympics and world championships. And I'd be really interested to know from this perspective, what is it you think the great coaches do differently? Yeah, look, it's interesting. I mean, I've, I guess I've been, I was fortunate across my coaching career because I started coaching pretty young, but I, um, I was exposed to a whole lot of coaches, um, good, bad, indifferent. But I think the beauty of that was you learnt different things from all of them. I think I, I learnt, you know, there was coaches I worked with, they're like, wow, I don't really want to operate that way. But they were great lessons to, to live in experience with, with different coaches that you felt that you you wouldn't particularly coach in their style or you didn't have a personality style or a belief system as was theirs. And I was fortunate as a young athlete, a basketball player growing up in Victoria, which is sort of the, I guess, the stronghold of basketball in Australia that, um, you know, I was coached by many Australian great coaches. I met Brett Brown. I was coached by Brett Brown and Stacker, Bill Palmer, Bruce Palmer, Brian Gorgian at camps as a, as a kid. So, you know, I was exposed to a plethora of wonderful coaches from a pretty young age. And I'd have to say, look, Tom Ma was, you know, absolutely had the biggest influence in my career was a mentor and a, and a friend and, and certainly the greatest coach of women's basketball that this country's produced. But I think the best coaches that I've, you know, either worked with or, or seen operate, I think they're, you know, they're true to who they are. They command respect in different ways. And I think that can only be through being authentically them. I think they, they tend to hold people accountable 
and they do that in different ways. And I think they have a, a real belief in, depending where they go, a belief in either winning or a belief in the development of people. And I think you can perhaps do both. But I'd say the common thing is the greatest coaches are also great teachers, I think, that they, they find a way to teach people. Sometimes that's not a conscious conscious thing that they do, but there's there's a real teaching aspect in, in coaching. I think the greatest coaches do that. Gary, you, you talked about starting your coaching career early. I believe you were only 26 in 93 when you, when you started. And in that first year, you won. You won the championship one point over Perth. And I guess there must be great positives and negatives from having success so early in your coaching career. But if I could ask you, what do you remember learning most in that first year as a coach? Yeah, look, I think one of my lessons in that year came really early because I was, look, I, we had a, I recruited a pretty talented team, then a couple of great players landed in my lap, Robin Ma, who was Tom Ma's wife, who happened to be a, a great player before they were husband and wife, was one of, one of Australia's great players and a, and a national team captain. And Robin called me to say, uh, did, I, did I want any players? And I said, oh, look, Robin, you know, look, we're right, we're pretty, we're pretty loaded, we've got a plethora of talent because I thought she was pitching me some, you know, bench player or something. And she said, oh, well, Tom and I are moving to Sydney because he just got the, the national team job. So, you know, it would have been pretty silly not to take on one of Australia's greatest players at the time. And she was the current Australian team captain. So I was like, yeah, sure, Rob. And was really excited about the opportunity of coaching. But she was 10 years my senior, you know, a triple Olympian or would be a triple Olympian come the next Olympics. And I was really excited about the opportunity to, to work with her. And then... After quite a bit of time, a lot of people kept saying to me, Graffy, how the hell are you going to coach Robin Mark? Because, you know, I was 25, Rob was 35, you know, this dominant, assertive, great legend player in, in Australian basketball and on the world stage as well. And then I started literally shitting myself, going, oh, God, how am I going to coach Robin Mark? You know, I've been fortunate. I'd played as a, a young player on, on a dominant number one inspectors team through the through the 80s that Tom coached or played on and a bunch of championships. And... Um, you know, and I thought, how am I going to deal with it? So, so I just thought, look, I just have to front up and be honest and explain to Robin how I'm, you know, the situation. So I went about the normal process, but in leading into a season, have individual meetings with all the athletes and talk about their role and how we might work together and our goals for the season, etc. And I, uh, I thought, look, I'm just going to have to call it as it is. So I just said, look, Rob, I was really excited about the prospect of, of coaching you and working with you, but now I'm shitting my pants. Um, and she said, and she said, weird, Graffy, I, I, great. I'm glad we got that out of the way because I felt the same way when I, you know, when I called you and was going to work with you, I thought that would be great. Um, and then people started saying to, to me, to Robin, how the hell are you, how, how are you going to play for graphics? So it was a great lesson in, you know, I could have acted like I didn't have an issue with that and just went along my merry way trying to coach Robin Ma. But the, the, the honest approach in how I was feeling actually helped. Because it, you know, it was it was authentic. She took it on board and went, yeah. What we think about? Don't listen to other people. We we're both looking forward to working with each other. Let's get on with it. And I, you know, and I said to her, Rob, look, I want to I want to hear your opinions. I want to hear what you've got to say. But I've I've got to coach the team and lead the team. And she goes, yep, yeah, I'll I'll support you. I'll do what you need. And and it made for a a, a great working relationship with a, a senior veteran athlete as a twenty five year old. You you coach, you coach Canberra. Yeah, sorry, you you coach. You're very successful. You come back in 99 to coach Canberra and the team hasn't played finals in seven years. Yet within a year, they win the championship and they go on to win another four in the next 10 years. What 
were some of the things you did first when you got back to Canberra to, to build that elite culture within that team? Yeah, look, one of the first things we did, because yeah, the, I think the Canberra team had only been in the playoffs in the 10 or 15 years they'd been in the league to that point, and they, yeah, they, it had been you know, years before. You know, first and foremost, we recruited some talent. Well, you know, they recruited me first and then I, we went about recruiting some talent. And, you know, it'd be silly to say that a young Lauren Jackson wasn't, um, didn't have a big impact on that. But, you know, we had, we had some veteran star talent there. Shelley Sandy, who was a triple Olympian Australian player, played in the ABL and played in the, the WNBA, was there. And, and I'd played with Shelley back at Nunawan Inspectors. And, um, and I knew she was a winner and knew how to win. But the rest of the group, hadn't really experienced winning. They didn't know what it was like to be in playoffs and they didn't know what it was like to win a championship. So the first thing that I did with the group was, you know, we had a blend of talent. We had some veteran talent that had come to Canberra. We had, we recruited some young talent. So we had Lauren Jackson and Kristen Veal out of the AAS who both went on to be, um, you know, Lauren, um, you know, we can talk about Lauren later, but everyone, you know, if you know anything about basketball, you've heard of Lauren Jackson, how great she was and is. Um, and Kristen Veal, who became a national team player and played in the WNBA. So, we had, we had some interesting talent and we had some local camera talent, but the first thing I did was we got them together and said, who here, who here thinks we could win a championship? And I could see the, the looks on the faces of the Canberra girls, the camera girls that were here thinking, oh my God, is she serious? Um, and then I went around the room and went, you know, count up, let's all count up the championships we won, whether it's in under 12s or under 14s or under 16s or in the WNBL, any championships you've won on state teams. And we went around the room and the number, you know, I'd been a part of many, Shelley Sandy had been a part of many. So our, our numbers as a group of winning was in the hundreds. So suddenly everyone in the room went, wow, we know how to win because we've got a whole lot of people in here that know how to win. And even if we haven't been a part of a WNBL championship, yeah, we won an, I won an under 12 premiership or I won the school girls championship. So it was it was really setting the stage for you do know how to win because you won. It doesn't matter if you haven't won at this level. And everything we did was about, well, how do we win this championship? And we kept that front front and centre and we set goals to sit under that. But it was really about instilling some belief early that if we do these certain things, we've absolutely got the, the talent to, to win the championship. And, and those of us that have won, here's some of the things that we think we can do to help this team win. So it was about um, instilling belief, I think, and then going about a process of, you know, doing the hard work, learning and evolving as a group and um, keeping our, our goal at the, at the forefront without being over-focused on the, the outcome. And I guess that was a little bit of your story too, because you started coaching in your mid to late teens, 14, 15 years old. So you'd already been coaching for 10 or 12 years, even though you were just 26. Are there any particular values or behaviours that have just been consistent that you have pushed into your athletes through your years as a coach? Yeah, look, I think um, I've always been big on on team chemistry and I guess that's really about how you treat people and treat your teammates. So that's been, I think, a value that's been important to me. You know, I grew up with both my parents were school teachers. I, I studied, a, um, I did a Bachelor of Applied Science in Education, phys ed teaching essentially. So my degree was in education. I had school, you know, school teacher parents um, so I never got any days off school. If you didn't go to school, you went to your parents' school if you had a sick day. So you watch them do their thing and lead people. So, but I think, yeah, that, that sense of how do, we, how do we get along as a team and how do we perform as a team and that everyone has a role within that, regardless of whether you're the star player or the 10th player. And I think for um, longevity of success that there's got to be great team chemistry because I don't think you can have 
sustain success without it. I think he can short-term win. I think he can win a championship with terrible chemistry, that people can find a way to win regardless of each other. Um, but I think to have long-term sustained success, there has to be a sense of respect for each other and a sense that we're working to accomplish something together while we're all developing in our own ways. You talk about sustained success, and actually there's been a couple of times in your career at Nunawading and when you coached at Canberra, where you've been involved with teams that have had multiple years of just ongoing success. And I'm really interested to know, I mean, you talk about respect and cohesion, but how do you develop those values within a team to make sure they don't become complacent or move forward with a sense of entitlement? Yeah, look, I think this was one of the, the great lessons that um, that I learned from Tom Maher. And Tom Maher instilled some Opals team themes with the, the Australian Olympic team back in 1992, it would have been, well, 93 when he first took on the job. And those those themes still um, ring true today. And they hang on banners at the AS Arena. In fact, a lot of varying different teams and clubs have adopted them. And I, and I think it was the lessons that I learned through playing in, in Tom's system, but Tom's um, those those themes had huge impact. And the way he went about um, making them a, a lived part of a team's culture. And they were, so I, I think this happens in business and, and you see it in sport, sports team too, is that they develop a set of team beliefs or cultures or, or whatever you want to, team themes, whatever you want to call them. And they'll go through, I think at the start of the year, and you, you go, yeah, they're great. We all believe in those and they're our themes. And then it's a piece of paper that goes in the drawer. But, you know, and, and I think in the American system, you know, you'll often see them in the locker room painted on and that's shifting certainly in the Australian culture. But Tom Tom drew the team themes into everything the team did. So at every, every practice, there'd be a reference to the team themes. Every goal-setting session, there'd be a reference to the team themes. Um, every team meeting, there'd be a, a reference to them. And, in fact, the players would be evaluated against the themes so it really held people to account to the themes and and to each other and and they became a part of what we did and I think you know I saw years later that the impact those themes had was when you saw athletes that have played in Tom's system on the national team do public speaking engagements they often use the team themes as a reference point um, I use them today and I use them and made some alterations and you know that's what we built the capitals culture on too was um, a, gr- a group of thematics that we felt were the pillars for success and that we evaluated on, on ourselves on them. For example, in a timeout, you know, if we'd had as our, one of our goals in the, in the pre-game meeting was, you know, we want to be relentlessly persistent or we want to handle adversity, that we'd pose that question in a timeout. Well, what are we? What's our score for relentless persistence on the, on the boards? And we'd show show hands and we use a scale of one to six six was world class zero was a disaster and there was no half score so it and it's a little bit old school but we you know we'd say we'll put up your hand at half time you know look at our goals we said it's um being assertive are we assertive put up your hand threes or twos or fives or fours and it it you were owning your own behavior for the team's performance and you were looking at each other saying yeah well i've got to pick up my game because i'm a three not a four or gosh disaster i'm a two or I'm a fight. So it was, um, I think, that consistent evaluation of the themes and how they utilised through through everything we did, I think, had a huge impact. And, and I think, you know, those three in particular that I speak to that are sort of life-specific are, yeah, relentless persistence, um, the ability to handle adversity, and a we team, which speaks to what I spoke to before in terms of team chemistry and cohesion and 
you know, the ability to work together as a group that there's, you know, the old adage, there's no I in team. And what does that actually mean? You know, it means respect, respect for difference that we're, we're not jealous of each other. We're not working against each other. We're working together for a, a common cause. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I've seen you speak a lot about assertion. Um, in relation to your time with the Opals, but also in relation to females in sport, particularly young young girls, and getting them um, more being to be more assertive using body language and voice, I'm wondering if you could just share some of your views on the importance of assertion. Yeah, look, I, th- I think you know this. Uh, I think we still for, for for girls and and you know young girls in particular and and young women that often from a young age that if young girls are assertive or confident or any of those traits that are traditionally seen as positive leadership traits, that if young girls exhibit those, they're, they're told they're bossy or they're rude or, um, but when a young boy does exactly that uses the same language and uses the same body language, people pat them on the back and say, mate, you're you're a great leader. Good job. Um, And I think that doesn't set our young girls up for, for successes future leaders in their in their adult lives and it's it's wrong it, it's a gender bias that we you know we're overlaying how women should behave or how girls should behave that you know leaders that's that's a leadership quality you know to be to be assertive not arrogant not not overly confident to, but to use your voice assertively and, and in sport in particular you know to communicate in sport it has to be assertive it has to be commanding it has to be short and sharp there isn't time for nice soft fluffiness in in the thick of a sporting battle or at practice when there's not much time and you're trying to tell a teammate that you're the open person if you say hey you know Susie pass it over to me it isn't going to come your way if you say Susie you know, then it's probably going to come your way and that's not a gender thing that's just how do I get how do I get something done that's helpful for the team how do I help that teammate see what the possible next decision could be and that um, how do we work together as a team defensively when we're you know, we've got 24 seconds to defend a team against a score. We need to boss each other around. But it's not bossing each other around. It's being assertive with each other to to help each other direct the traffic. And I think teaching young girls that through sport is a wonderful skill to have. That They they learn, um, you know, and I do this with young, young girls when we do coaching things. I'll go around and get them just to say their name as an example. Go around the group and say your name. And I talk about being assertive firstly, and I give examples of me using my voice assertively and, and I'll, I'll call them out in a nice way. Do you think that was assertive? And they'll go, no. And so, so each person tries 
how to use their voice just by calling their name in an assertive way. And I think a simple thing like that helps young people understand, okay, I understand that. It's okay to use my voice in a loud tone if I can play with that and what does that mean? My teammates aren't going to be offended or think I'm a bitch. They're just going to understand that in sport and in things that require short communications, that that's how we speak to each other, not in a rude way, um, but in an assertive way. And I think that's a, a powerful message for, for young girls and young women. Kerry, you've been very vocal through most of your career about coaching being gender agnostic. In fact, you said, quote, it doesn't have a penis or a vagina. Yeah, I regretted saying that uh, just because my mum probably heard that interview. But I, I mean, I don't really, but yeah, it, it does. Um, Cause she'd say, Oh, Dal, do you need to say those words? Um, but it's, yeah, it doesn't, I think for a long time. And, and I certainly felt this maybe as a, without recognizing as a young, as a young coach that I'd been mostly coached by men, um, which isn't a bad thing that I was coached by some men, but it was unfortunate that they were the only role, role models I really had. And that, you know, finding my way through coaching and being actually being myself took a while, I think, because I, I was, you know, obviously I respected and admired Tom Ma so much and there was other male coaches that I hadn't. So the only way I'd lived and seen was how they operated. And I, deep down within me, I didn't feel that that was me. I didn't, but I didn't know any other way. I, I had to sort of navigate my way through finding, finding my own voice and finding my own style just as me. And that happened to be as a woman, but that hasn't shifted in the coaching game a lot. We still, we still don't have the numbers in, in women's high performance coaching that we had, we've got the same numbers that we had 20 years ago. I mean, it's, you know, the dial just hasn't shifted. And I think there's still this misconception that coaching's a man's game. You know, we, we haven't broken through yet that there's more than one or two females as assistant coaches in men pro, men's pro leagues. Um, that still the majority of coaches in a lot of, women's sports are men and in the in the you know the new women's sports that are springing up aflw here in australia and and cricket mostly the men are coaches um and there's a perception that well if he's played at a certain level of cricket then he must be a decent coach so let's you know he can coach the coach the girls i just think we've still got a lot of work to do in that space and that absolutely women can coach high performance sport they play it um they can coach it and and they might do it a little bit differently but that's that's okay at the whatever people's, you know, um, style of coaching is in terms of their personality and their leadership traits, I don't think we need to lay a gender lens over the top of that. It's, it's just coaching and, and women are just as capable. It's the reason uh, Jim and I started this podcast, you know, to try and get the message. We've both got daughters and we want, we want that message of taking a leadership role, not being afraid to step up to be one that, that we talk about around the dinner table. So when I was talking about who I was interviewing today, I did say I'm interviewing a coach that says coaching is agnostic and doesn't have a penis or a vagina. And it did get attention. So I think it was a good, uh, <laughs> I think it was a good uh, soundbite. And I think I'm glad that you said it, but actually what I wanted to ask you was you were of course the first female Australian coach in the WNBA in America. And I am wondering how you had to adapt your style, if at all, for the, uh, for the Americans. Yeah, um, and uh, there's a caveat around that. I was the first Aussie as an assistant female, um, and there was a few female coaches in the WNBA then, and it probably shifted a little bit. I mean, obviously, I was there as an assistant with Cheryl Miller, who was a head coach. Um, I think there was Anne Donovan, who was head coach in the league then, Marianne Stanley. So there was maybe three or four out of over a dozen. Um, and then 
maybe four or five as assistants. But for me, the shift in coaching in Australia versus the US wasn't so much gender-based. It was more adjusting to coaching US athletes as opposed to Australian athletes, with all due respect to all my American friends. Um, and I've got, a, you know, I made a lot of good friendships in my time in, in coaching in the WNBA. But, you know, there's, there's subtle differences between Australian and US athletes. And I, I think, um, and there's some pros and cons of both. And I think US athletes tend to have a, a very good sense of who they are and their talent. And they all come to, come to the table from other programs and have a belief that they're all really, really good. You know, you'd be aware as an Aussie of the, the tall poppy syndrome that we, you know, Australians tend to downplay their talent and uh, we grow up thinking that, that, you know, don't be cocky, don't be too confident, you know, you get, you get pegged down and we, we tend to not, not say that we're that good. So, for instance, I, I spoke about that scale of six before that, um, you know, I, I, I went in and did a similar thing. We set up team themes, we evaluated them and I'd have, I'd have plays the whole time go, right, how are we, you know, what's our score for... Um, assertiveness on the boards and I'd have sixes all around the room and that uh, you know there'd be someone that hadn't got a rebound and I said you didn't you only played four minutes tonight and you didn't get a rebound how could you be six they go well I was six so it was this really interesting um difference on you know for me that rating scale didn't really work evaluating themes and goals that way didn't work quite the same as it did so there were real I think adjustments in adjusting to subtle cultural difference you know obviously the cultural differences between the US and Australia aren't great but they're certainly there so I think it was more adjusting um subtle adjustments in in that in dealing with a different mindset of athlete really you have a long history as an assistant um and also as a head coach with the Australian national team and you led them to a bronze at the 2012 uh, Olympics in London but I'm interested to ask you about representative teams where you're coaching players who are competitors most of the time and how you deal with any lingering personal issues when you pull that team together? Yeah, look, it's a, it's a toughie. I mean, I think it's got a, it sort of reverts back to my, my earliest story when I first started coaching and, you know, handing a situation with a veteran athlete that was intimidating to me that um, I think you have to have the discussion. You have to have the difficult conversation. You have to bring people together. And I think, you know, whenever you national teams are a challenge, you know, you're making selections and there's always one or two selections that could go either way, literally, that when you're getting down to 11 and 12, you could go anyway and you're going to break someone's Olympic dream, you know, so they're, they're tough conversations. And I think then bringing together, certainly the, the more professional women's basketball has got around the world, the less time the Australian national team has had to prepare together because our best athletes play overseas all over the world. Um, they play all over Europe, in Asia, obviously in the US and the WNBA. And so the lim you get limited preparation with essentially a team of all-stars. You know, you've got the best talent. So trying to pull that together quickly, I think, is is one of the, the great challenges, that it's, it's much more like coaching an all-star team and you've got to quickly get the group together and playing together. And you don't have a lot of time to smooth out relationship bumps. You've got to... If you if you feel there's there's a potential problem, you've got to get some get some people in the room and have the have the, the honest conversation and talk about look whatever differences you've had or we've had, we've got to put them to bed because we've got three weeks together and we've got a medal to win um, and a gold medal to win. So it's um you know and, and it's hard to say all right put something behind you that's you know perhaps been a two or three year ongoing issue 
to say, let's um, just pretend that that's all gone now and in a week let's hold hands and sing Kumbaya and play together. But that's what's got to happen. And, and you know, look, athletes are, are hugely professional and they, they also, when they come together, have goals. They have individual goals. You know, every player on those national teams wants to win a gold medal um, and they want to do whatever they can to, to achieve that. So they find a way to put differences to bed that, you know, that there'll be players on, you know, they're playing with athletes that maybe they've been arch rival with, arch rivals with and competitors with for five, six, seven years, people that they haven't had great relationships for whatever reason. So it's, um, you know, it's definitely a challenge, but I think the better people and the better teams find ways to overcome any of those issues. Kerry, I love this quote from you uh, and I hope I'm attributing it correctly. It says, it's about a mindset about what women can and can't do. That's where we have to see some change to the perception of what women and girls can do. And I'd like to look at the question, the quote from a slightly different angle and ask you, what can our coaches do, whether they're male or female, what can they do to better develop the mindset of their female athletes? I think it's having, um, having girls believe that they can do anything. And I, and I think having particularly, you know, with their physical skill set, that they can, they, can perform, they can perform in team sports just like boys and men can. You know, they're playing against each other. They're not playing against men or boys. You know, when, they, when they're young, maybe up to under 10, they play with boys. But you can actually, you can do anything. So if you're watching men's sport, you can do any, anything that they're doing. You can kick it like them. You can mark it like them. You can hit it like them. You can shoot it like them. You can do any of that. You know, it mightn't be quite as powerful or it might be quite as fast, but any of those physical skills they're doing, you can do those. There, there is no reason why a young girl can't do what a young boy can do in a sporting context. That any of those skills, you can, you can learn them, you can develop them, absolutely. So I think it's, it's having that, that sense early with young girls, you can do anything if you put your mind to it. And if you, it's that classic, if you think you can, you can. And if people tell you you can't, well, tell them that you can. And if the reason is because you're a girl, tell them you absolutely can because you are a girl. And I think that's one of the drivers for me is that I was told to do that because I was a girl. And it just seemed unfair to me as a, as a seven-year-old kid that was pretty good at sports, all sports, that I couldn't do that. And they'd say, oh, Carrie, you can't play football. And I'd say, but why? Like seven or eight-year-olds do. And they'd say, because you're a girl. And I'd say, but why? <laughs> and they'd say, because you're a girl. And, but it, I wasn't being a smart aleck. It was just I didn't, that didn't make sense to me. Like, what do you mean I'm a girl? And I would say, but I'm better than Peter Woods in, a, in an innocent way. And the boys would say, yeah, she's better than Peter Woods. You know, that, God love Peter Woods. But um, he wasn't a bad footballer, but I was better. But it was um, – so from a young age, it just didn't make sense to me because it – seven, eight, nine, ten, I could hit the cricket ball just like the boys could. I could bowl, I could catch, I could kick a footy, but I kept being told that I couldn't and the only reason was because I was a girl. So it, I guess I've carried that through my coaching and through any work that I do with young girls is that you, you can actually do it and you can, and young girls can now be professional athletes and professional coaches and I think that's, you know, I now look at young girls growing up in this country and they can aspire to be a plethora of sporting, they could have a profession as a female as a female athlete in a whole bunch of sports, and I think that's that's a great a great change. And there's a whole bunch of little girls that won't have any interest in that at all. But when I was a little girl, there was you couldn't even dream of that. So I think that there has been a shift. But I think having girls believe that they can be the prime minister, the president, they could be a, a brain surgeon, a 
nuclear physicist, um, an Olympic athlete, an Olympic coach, uh, a football champion, whatever it is that, you know, girls, girls are capable of doing anything just as are women. Carrie, you seem so articulate and firm in your beliefs. And so I'm going to ask this question, but I don't know if I'm going to get an answer to it. But if I had a time machine and I could take you back to Nunawading and give you the chance to talk to that 15 year old who was coaching those under 12 girls in the same club, what advice would you give yourself? um, Yeah, look, I'm going to say I don't know. Um, I mean, I'd probably give her the advice that I've just given you. Not given you, but that that I've just shared that I'd, I'd say you can do anything. I think it's a great message and I can't wait to share it with my, uh, my two girls who are actually getting ready to go to school. But uh, I, um, I, I think it's a wonderful message and I think it's, you know, I talk, we talked to, we interviewed Lisa Alexander and she added to that thought by saying, and I expect one of you to be a prime minister one day. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's tremendous pressure to put on your athletes, but I think it's yeah. pressure that they, by virtue of the fact that they've got to where they are, it's pressure that they can handle. And, and I think they Absolutely. go off and they become ambassadors for, for yeah. And I think, you know, if you raise if you raise the bar for people, they'll they'll jump it. You know, if if you give them the, the support they need and the teaching and the guidance. But I think if you put a ceiling on people, well, that's all they can. You know, trying to break through a ceiling is pretty tough. But if there is no ceiling, it's just a bar. You can jump over it. So, um, oh, you hit a nice little chord of the fifteen-year-old me. But. <laughs> I carry on. You should just know I've got a message from Jim who's listening in the background and he's, uh, he's got a few tears as well. He told me, um, Good. I'm going to finish with, I'd like to finish with an even easier question then. Um, I'll blame it on menopause by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if this is a fair question either, but I'm, I'm going to ask it because we, we ask every, every coach this, um, you finished coaching. I don't know whether you have plans to go back to it, but you seem to be quite energised by the organisation and direction of the of of the broader sporting community. But what legacy do you think you've left as a coach for the many many uh, women that you have touched over the years? Yeah, look, I uh, I haven't really thought about it, and look, I'd never say never to coaching again, but um, you never know what what happens in the future, but. I'd like to think that the the athletes that I've coached um, do believe that they can do anything. That if they if they chose to coach, they could see they could coach as themselves, and they could coach as a female regardless, and that they could coach in the NBL or the NBA. Um, that they felt that they were, you know, they were they were worthy to be to be anything they could be, and that they I don't know that that they had a sense that coaches can be compassionate and authentic and that coaches care about them and that they can take those sort of lessons into their life. Gary Graff, it's been a pleasure and an honour interviewing you today. Thank you very much for your time. I wish you all the best for the WNBL Hub and for your constant uh, efforts to try and get more women into coaching as well. Thanks for having me and uh, apologies for the tears, but, you know, us chicks cry sometimes. The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, it's Jim here. You've been listening to our discussion with Carrie Graff, the Director of Sport at the University of Canberra. This really was a wonderful conversation. 
I felt inspired and emotional with Carrie's purpose that girls are capable of anything. Her messages about girls and women in sport and in business are powerful. Her views on confident assertiveness and that coaching doesn't have a gender are a discerning way to remind us of what great coaches can do for us all. We hope you enjoyed it as much as Paul and I did. Coming up next on the Great Coaches podcast, we'll be speaking to a person who has coached at the elite level across three different sports. Neil Craig. And so your best coaches though are, are not risk adverse. They're not, they're, not, they're not cowboys, but they understand that if you don't take risks, like you, you end up being a, an imitator. So you imitate people all the time, whereas your best coaches want to be innovators. And just before we go, Paul and I have truly appreciated all the encouraging feedback we've been receiving about the podcast. We started this journey to take inspiration from the stories of great coaches to use in our professional lives and to have better dinner table conversations with our families. It's turned into so much more for us both, and we are grateful for your support. And remember, if you know a great coach that has a unique story to share, then we would love to hear from you. You can contact us using the details in the show notes.